Recently, I've been thinking a lot about mining. Whether you're talking about the maximum size of blocks, centralization, incentives on the network, or even why we mine at all, it feels like issues that have been simmering for a long time are coming to a head. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, we're going back in time to the summer of 2013 for two segments off two early episodes, dealing with some of the exact same issues and many themes similar to those dominating the conversation today. First, I'm joined by Andreas Amantinopoulos and Dr. Stephanie Murphy on episode 20 of Let's Talk Bitcoin for a segment called Mining and the Forest for the Trees. Then, we revisit one of my all-time favorite interviews with American hacker Jeffrey Paul, better known as Sneak, for a segment off episode 32 called Sneak's Law. The magic word for today's episode is nettle. That's N-E-T-T-L-E. Nettle. You've got until the 12th of March to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener awards. Enjoy the show. Dan Kaminsky is a well-known security researcher and uh, was recently on a panel talking about the security of Bitcoin at the Bitcoin 2013 conference in San Jose last month. One of the most interesting things I think that came out of the entire conference was actually something that he said during that talk. And I want to play the clip now and so we can kind of discuss the implications. I assign 0% probability that we will uh, continue with the present proof of work function. The present proof of work function is not going to survive the year, period. If, if there's one hard prediction I'm going to make, it's going to be that. Uh, the reality is that it's impossible to model the... Look, you have to think of the system in terms of regulatory sets. One dude spins up one batch of ASICs and gets double-digit percentages of the network. That's one guy. That's not okay. Bitcoin depends on there being so many freaking people to regulate that you can't do it. That when you try to regulate it, you don't get power, you just get more people. Bitcoin uses, or at least by design, was designed to leverage the hundreds of millions of machines around the world that do computation. That is an impossible set to control. One dude, not an impossible set to control. (laughs) We think that, you know, the ASIC guys love saying, hey, you know, we'll just have lots of people buy ASICs. Yeah, you like that argument because you sell ASICs. (laughs) But, But, I mean, that's okay. There's, there have always been economic motivators for people to make their mining things. I mean, with ASIC, even in a best case, you're going to see a massive uh, industrialization of mining to the hands of a few small players. Like, it's not, you know, it's not going to be an ASIC in every garage. If that happens, Bitcoin fails. I'm not sure what the proof-of-work function or functions are going to look like. I had a great meeting. Let's just say I had a meeting with some people and it became clear that multiple proof-of-work functions operating as a you know, basket of currencies kind of thing is probably the, uh, the path that's going to happen. I don't know where this is going to go yet. All I know is, is that Bitcoin is as a life-or-death dependency on mining not centralizing you have one mining pool btc guild with 48 percent of the power you think this is an accident you think they just oh you know we just ran out of power right before 50 percent no <laughs> and they're like okay everyone realizes that if we ever exceed 50 percent the value of everything goes to zero so we're just going to stop here this aspect of the system has got to change I'm not sure what it's going to change into, 
either Bitcoin changes or something else happens to leverage the hundreds of millions of machines. Because right now, if you have a CPU or a GPU, you shouldn't be mining. So the question is, if we could turn back the clock and take this uh, move towards GPUs and then ASICs and, you know, make it go away and make it so that, that that is not something that is feasible any longer, is that is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? I mean, are ASICs, uh, I mean, are they a curse? Are they a blessing? Dan is absolutely right. This is absolutely a critical problem for Bitcoin. It is one that represents the greatest threat to the survivability of Bitcoin. And I, I like to quote Saint Satoshi himself. This from uh, page three of the Satoshi paper. The proof of work also solves the problem of determining representation in majority decision making. If the majority were based on one IP address, one vote, it could be subverted by anyone able to allocate many IPs. Proof of work is essentially one CPU, one vote. That's what Satoshi said. That was the vision. And that vision has very much been subverted um, by ASICs because essentially what it says now is that that power is getting concentrated. The problem isn't so much the fact that people can buy ASICs and they're expensive. The problem is that the ASIC is three, four, five, ten orders of magnitude more efficient than CPUs and it basically crowds out uh, everybody else. So centralization uh, destroys neutrality, um, provides a single target for regulators and centralization is the thing that destroys Bitcoin. Absolutely, ASICs are a problem. The current proof of work system, in the end, ends up centralizing too much power into too few miners and violates the basic precept of Satoshi. Proof of work is essentially one CPU, one vote. No longer the case. I can't really blame them as a problem. I know you're not blaming them, Andreas, but I think they're kind of inevitable. What I mean by that is that there's such a great incentive to find a more efficient way to do the proof of work. The pressure is so great and the incentive is so great and there's so much to gain by developing some technology that helps that happen that of course ASICs come out. You know, maybe there'll be something even more powerful than ASICs in the future. I think I agree with you that there is a potential problem there with the centralization, especially since ASICs right now are so expensive, definitely centralizing power. We've seen some ASICs come out, but there have been so many problems with them. I guess there's still some room for skepticism right now. Like there's still room to talk about this and say we can still prevent this problem before it really gets bad. There hasn't been a huge hitting of the market, so to speak, of, of ASIC miners yet. How could you even do that with Bitcoin? We can't turn back the clock. The only thing that could be done, I suppose, is create another cryptocurrency that is somehow literally unable to do anything but CPU mining. And I know that there are some folks who are interested in doing that, but then, you know, you'd have to get people to adopt that and use that and value it. And will they, when there is such a strong profit incentive to go with Bitcoin and the ASIC miners, which have the potential to centralize power quite a bit? Hey, if the incentives create centralization, don't blame the actors who are following the incentives, as you said, Stephanie, but look at the incentives very carefully. Are those incentives really aligned with the long-term vision of Bitcoin? And the answer is simple. It's no. Centralization is anathema to Bitcoin. It will be the thing that could destroy Bitcoin. So if the incentives are aligned so that they create centralization, which I think is obvious and very much happening right now, then that's a problem. 
can it be solved? I think it can be solved with a hard fork. It's not an easy solution. It's not a soft fork solution. It's a hard fork solution. And it looks kind of something like this. After block X, where X is some block in the future, the only blocks that will be accepted by the reference client are those that have proof of work based on something else. That could be script. By the way, people have probably heard us talking about script, and uh, just to clarify, that's S-C-R-Y-P-T, and it's an algorithm that is extremely difficult to expand into an ASIC because it requires a trade-off between CPU and memory. So if you if you try to crunch it hard with an ASIC, what you end up doing is using a lot of memory, and you can't scale memory the way you can scale uh, computation. So, so essentially, what it does is it puts a, a a counterbalancing incentive against centralization. So, yeah, we could change proof of work. It would be a hard fork. It would be a, a difficult project. It would require some work to get there. But if anything is worth a, a hard fork, that would be it. The other but why alternative, not just use Litecoin? The other alternative <laughs> is Litecoin. The issue here is simply one of balance, right? Do you fork? to a different currency or do you maintain the network effect and do the fork internally within bitcoin it's always a matter of if you think bitcoin will succeed in the long term and the network effect the fact that many others support it and and use it is good enough then you go to bitcoin if you don't believe that evolution can happen within bitcoin then you go for litecoin uh, and i think there'll always be a balance between that natural kind of incentive to fork and the incentive to stay on the Bitcoin blockchain where the network effect is greatest. So we'll see how this plays out. So the, the good news is Litecoin already exists. So the alternative is already there. And if Bitcoin fails, the, what that does is it allows Litecoin to succeed. That's the nice thing about having an ecosystem. So now Litecoin aside, Peter was also on that panel. Peter from Coinbase was also on this panel with Dan. And the thing that he brought up, I clipped this uh, out a little bit so it could be shorter. One of the things that he brought up is that if you wanted to make a change like that to Bitcoin itself, you'd run into a problem because the people who, who you're essentially trying to obsolete, you know, the ASIC miners, probably by the time you get around to doing this, actually have more than 51% of the network. So you're essentially asking them to be okay with and participate in <laughs> mm. a switch that takes that invalidates their rather large investments uh, yep. into you know it, so so is that even possible or do we think that that is why litecoin could in fact take over is because asics wouldn't decide that they are going to invalidate themselves and so the shift has to happen a hard fork where you change the proof of work would be very difficult but think of it from this perspective the centralization has already resulted in essentially cpu and gpu miners abandoning bitcoin the mining increasingly being concentrated on ASICs. Now, if you did say sometime in the future, and this could be you know six months out, eight months out, a year out even, um, but as long as you baked it into the protocol in advance, then you could essentially gradually align the incentives. Instantly, ASICs would be less popular. It wouldn't affect the current generation of ASICs because they would continue being profitable until that period of time. But it would affect decisions about buying future versions of ASICs. And it would also make people uh, evaluate the ASICs and the new proof of work for future value that they could bring. But at the end of the day, if you made that change, it would also allow almost a million people who are in Bitcoin today to resume CPU mining on this new algorithm and bring them into the fold. So if the ASIC miners walked away, 10,000 of them, 
right? And instead, you had a million people walk into the fold. I, I don't see how that's a problem. It's only a problem if you accept the centralization is inevitable, and that's really a, a symptom of the proof of work, not the underpinning assumption. So if you change the proof of work, the balance of power changes, and now you have a million new miners who can enter the field. So if ASIC miners lose some money, you know, they lose some money over that speculation, but I don't think there'd be a problem with their blockchain continuing to be more valuable while the other blockchain with all of the users on it isn't. I think you'd see quite the opposite. Essentially, people would vote with their mining, and that's exactly what mining is supposed to do, be a vote. So if the new proof of work is decentralized, more people can vote. You know, taking a step back from this, I think that broadly speaking, I can say we all kind of agree that ASICs aren't great overall for the health of the network because of, like you said, the centralizing effect, right? I would call it a disenfranchising effect even more strongly. I'm neutral on them, but I think they do kind of tend to centralize a little bit. Okay, so following that logic, doesn't that also mean the GPUs are basically also bad? Because in the same way that fewer people have ASICs than have GPUs, similarly, fewer people have GPUs that are powerful enough to mine in a reasonable fashion compared to CPUs. So, I mean, I, the question I'm asking here, I guess, is does the total amount of power in the network actually matter, or is it just about the distribution of however much power there is? I think you're getting at something that's been sort of on my mind during this whole discussion, Adam, which is that we need to redistribute the hashing power on the Bitcoin network. You know, I, I don't like that because that itself, I mean, to me, like smacks of some centralization when anybody talks about redistribution. Now, I'm not sure, like my thoughts aren't completely uh, formed on this, but yeah, I mean, I guess if we take that logic to its uh, conclusion, like if if something is done to sort of eliminate ASICs or get rid of ASICs, then, you know, why not GPUs? Why can't we, are we going to be saying, oh, everybody has to be mining? If you're going to mine on the Bitcoin network, it has to be with this, with a CPU and it has to be this specific CPU so that everybody has equal hashing power. That could get pretty ridiculous who gets to make that decision and enforce it, you know? I would certainly not join such a blockchain, one that prescribes control over which CPU you use or something like that. I think it's a matter of orders of magnitude, right? If you, if you use a proof of work that has less of a difference between the orders of magnitude of mining of a CPU, a GPU, and an ASIC, and script already does that, it flattens that advantage a tiny bit, then essentially with the absolute minimum amount of change, you achieve the original incentives of Bitcoin, which is to distribute the voting consensus among as many participants in the network as possible. In my ideal environment for Bitcoin, every single phone you have that's running a client is also doing a tiny bit of mining. Every single device you use as your wallet is doing a bit of mining. If you could distribute it to that extent, then it becomes harder and harder to stop Bitcoin. And at the end of the day, I think it's really a survival mechanism. Centralization in ASICs is not a problem because the ASICs people make too much money or because we want to change who controls the network. It's a problem because they can be attacked in regulatory terms, and also the mining can be shifted to an organization that doesn't have Bitcoin's best interests in mind. If someone puts up an ASIC farm, and it's not that hard to do, they could literally take over Bitcoin just to shut it down. And that's a bad outcome. Now, it's less likely 
if you have a proof of work that is not as easy to scale up as an ASIC. This is very tangential here, but I'm, I'm really curious. On the flip side, because CPUs are so ubiquitous, right? So let's assume for a second that we make a shift and we go, we, you know, GPUs no longer work, ASICs no longer work. Does that put more power in the hands of corporations that have large amounts of computers like workstations that employees use, you know, and they can just have this low level mining process going in the background? Mm. Is this a way to generate revenue for companies that have large amounts of computers and workers on them? I think you'll find that the number of computers owned by corporations is a lot less than the number of computers owned by individuals. So from that perspective, I don't think that's too much of a problem. But at the same time, we're not talking about GPUs no longer work or ASICs no longer work. We're simply talking about ASICs don't give you a 10,000-fold advantage over CPU. They only give you a 100-fold advantage or 10-fold advantage over CPU. They still would have significant advantages. There'd still be plenty of incentive for specialized computing devices to do this. But it would go back more to the initial environment where you had people building mining rigs that could be done on an individual basis. I think it's just a matter of designing which incentives give us the best possible future for Bitcoin. And, you know, the, the, the core idea of the distributed blockchain proof of work system is one CPU per vote. If you can buy up all the votes in the network, that's a problem. I can tell you something that's a little bit exciting to me, you know, on this topic. On June 23rd, a guy by the name of ByteMaster on the Bitcoin Talk forums released a challenge for people to try and uh, get more oomph out of a GPU processor or an ASIC processor for this proof of work. And, you know, obviously it's GPU because you'd have to design a specific ASIC because they are application specific. And this is a new algorithm. Basically, the protocol is aimed entirely for being as efficient as possible on CPUs to the detriment of GPUs and to the detriment of any sort of dedicated application. The bounty, if you can get 25% faster performance out of any GPU compared to what they're getting out of their CPU code is 40 bitcoins. So if this is something that you have expertise in and you think that you can make this happen, then you should definitely go take a look. There will be a link in the show notes to it. And I'm very curious if someone manages to come up with a way to, to break through this new algorithm, because it could be pretty promising otherwise. If this passes the challenge, creating some kind of new cryptocurrency with uh, the new algorithm? Yes, there's a currency that they've been working on called BitShares. I've actually spoken with their uh, lead designer on it a couple of times, a guy named Daniel Larimer. It's gone through several iterations. This was crypto USD the first time we talked about it. We've looked at it on the show before and not on the show itself, but on the back end trying to figure out if it's something we should talk about. And this is their latest iteration of it. And they seem pretty confident that it's entirely GPU proof and ASIC resistance while being as fast as possible to verify. Direct quote. It's good to see people working on this problem because the centralization thing, especially as we get into a more ASIC defined future, it just seems like you can see that this is going to be a problem. It might not be a problem now, but it's going to be a problem. And so it's good to see people working towards solutions towards that. And if anybody else is working towards solutions in this area, please contact us because it's an area we're actively interested in. So could we just point out the fact that Bitcoin is just amazing, simply from the perspective that if you don't like it, you can go make your own. And right. <laughs> also, if you don't like the current decisions going on in the Bitcoin code, you can fork and follow a different... Uh, blockchain. Despite the problems we're talking about, the solutions to these problems are enabled by the very nature of Bitcoin itself, by the fact that it's a consensus-driven mechanism. So Bitcoin can solve its own problems and can evolve past its own problems. 
And that's really a key property of Bitcoin that will allow it, to, I believe, to survive many such issues. And it has already survived issues like this in the past. Or it will allow alternative coins to arise out of the ecosystem and take on more of a leading role. And the incentives are perfectly balanced. The feedback mechanisms are super fast. So this is as close as you can come to an efficient market for picking the currency of your choice. Even if Bitcoin went away tomorrow, you could uh, jump on a new currency and still exchange your Bitcoin for this new currency relatively easily. Taking this incentive idea, I guess, um, if there is some new cryptocurrency that's created and is GPU and ASIC proof, what if it's only GPU and ASIC proof during this initial testing phase when it's kind of like, eh, the incentives aren't really there? What if it becomes a multi-billion dollar currency and then suddenly there are huge incentives to, to make devices or machines? Maybe it's not GPUs or ASICs, maybe it's something completely different, but to somehow maximize the profit. What if that happens in the future? I'm interested to see how that plays out. I'm just thinking economics here, that as a cryptocurrency becomes more valuable, then the profit incentives become greater and greater, and necessity is the mother of invention, right? Like everybody said about Litecoin, it's totally ASIC and GPU resistant. Well, now people are talking about making ASICs that may be able to mine Litecoins on the script algorithm, even though the spread wouldn't be as big as with the SHA-256 algorithm like for Bitcoin between ASICs and GPUs or GPUs and CPUs. I'm just really curious to see what happens with this. The organization offering 40 Bitcoin as a bounty to overcome their algorithm is competing against the established economy of Bitcoin that offers a $1.7 billion bounty to anyone who breaks the encryption. 25 Bitcoin every 10 minutes for anyone who's able to overcome mining difficulties and mine more efficiently. So yeah, I mean the incentives really favor innovation, a very rapid innovation towards achieving the the rewards that are on the blockchain. The better solution would be to introduce some flexibility into the proof of work concept so that we can gradually change proof of work through consensus as the network becomes more centralized. You know, a feedback mechanism that acts to decentralize the network, if mining becomes centralized by changing proof of work, would be a great way to solve this problem, not just this time, but for the future. At the end of the day, too big to fail happens to any organization, whether it's a totalitarian system or a democratic system or meritocratic system. All of these systems gradually morph towards centralization, concentration of power, and basically they need a reset every few years. I have no illusions that Bitcoin won't also become more centralized, with the power more concentrated in fewer hands, unless it also gets a reset every few years in order to adjust to the new reality. That should be a goal, not something to fear. Do you think that that's something that winds up being automated into the protocol itself? Or is that something where you know the devs at the steering wheel at that particular time make the judgment call or say, okay, well, it's been four years, it's time to have a big reckoning again? I mean, how, how do you think that something like that can happen? Well, the devs have shown so far that their inclination is towards creating market-based uh, feedback mechanisms rather than making decrees by fiat, you might say, uh, making decrees as to how the algorithm should work. And I think that follows the spirit of Satoshi, which is be able to make these decisions by consensus. It becomes a bit more complicated when the issue you're trying to resolve is the disenfranchisement of consensus itself. 
and that's a bit more tricky. But I, I think in the long term, what we need to do is find self-balancing solutions that work through feedback that would make the currency much more robust. So if you think that innovation in Bitcoin hasn't stopped, but is only beginning, I don't see why we couldn't do innovation in that particular area that also honors the original incentive structures of Satoshi and achieves the one CPU, one vote promise more effectively. Hi everybody, Adam B. Levine here with Let's Talk Bitcoin. Today I'm joined by Jeffrey Paul, aka Sneak. Jeffrey, we've been trying to get together to do this talk for, I guess, a couple months now. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm really glad we're finally getting a chance to do it. You have a really interesting background, and actually, uh, you know, it was your talk at, uh, I believe it was the Chaos Communication Conference? The, the Chaos Communication Camp, the one they Camp. do in the summertime. Yeah, okay, the one that they do in the summertime in Germany. Mm -hmm. From what, Did you speak in 2010? Uh, it was no. It was um, the I started giving the talk in 2010. I think that one was from 2011 or 12. They they do it every four years. I see. I see. So that was actually you gave a talk called "Financing the Revolution," mm -hmm. and that was actually the talk that turned me on to cryptocurrencies in general. And uh, actually, beyond even the cryptocurrency side of it, it explained in a way that made me understand why it was actually helpful to have currencies that weren't necessarily tied to identity and that couldn't necessarily be uh, precluded for reasons that were arbitrary. Yeah, one of the things I really like about the CCC, their events, they produce them, they're very technical, but they also produce them specifically with an eye toward freedom and liberties and things like that. Being German, they're very focused on personal privacy and the intersection between privacy and technology, and I like that. And so I didn't want to just give a purely technical talk. Um, that, of course, has been done but since then, but uh, the, it was really important for me to show why uh, it's not just some you know, libertarian gold bug thing that we need, current, we need internet and electronic payments that can't be censored by government, but also it's just fundamentally important to everyone that believes in democracy or, or individual liberty within a society. Because without it, then we, you know, there, there, there are a whole bunch of things in the dependency tree that that stem from being able to make payments that maybe the government doesn't want you to. So that was the fo that was one of the r big reasons I wanted to give that talk, and I gave it sort of a provocative title, "Financing the Revolution." At the time, Bitcoin wasn't wasn't really that big, and it's sort of now becoming this de facto internet currency, and we're going to see more and more of that. I think like it's still not to the point where you could finance a revolution with it yet, but I think we'll see that within the next five to ten years. So now, I mean, again, the, the kind of natural follow-on there, before we get into the privacy aspects of it, because I think that's one of the most interesting parts here, uh, you know, I mean, you're saying five to ten years out. I'm curious, are you talking about Bitcoin specifically, or are you talking about cryptocurrencies broadly? So Bitcoin raises that interesting question. Uh, a lot of people, when they first hear about Bitcoin, they say, well, this is stupid, it has no value and no one should use it. But the fact is, it does have value, because the subjective theory of value is really the only practical one. And you can argue all day long whether or not you know, you know, paper money has value or gold has any intrinsic value or anything like that. But the fact is that people accept them as value. And, and the same goes for Bitcoins. There are other cryptocurrencies that have sprung up, almost all of which are directly descended from Bitcoin. Actually, I think all of them are directly descended from Bitcoin, the decentralized ones anyway. Um, 
but really it boils down to are they useful and I know a lot of people have gotten into Litecoin and Strongcoin and things like that but honestly I don't really care about these because the utility of a currency is only who accepts it and when you're dealing with something this small markets this small and, and adoption curves uh, that are linear really the only thing that's interesting to me are the ones you can actually use as money today and, and that's barely Bitcoin even and Bitcoin is an order of magnitude larger than any of the other ones at least do you see that? So, but, but, so you think that that advantage there is powerful enough that it will be Bitcoin for the foreseeable future because it's already achieved that. And so if one is going to put effort into something, it makes more sense to put it into that regardless of what else is out there. Absolutely. I've never owned a Litecoin or a Strongcoin or any of that. And I think they're interesting research projects. But really, this whole idea of a decentralized store of value, a decentralized payment mechanism is foreign to most people. And it is requires a cultural shift for this to become accepted in the wider world. Right now it's of interest to security people, it's of interest to hackers, it's of interest to libertarians and other crypto anarchists and things like that. But the, the long-term thing here is that people need to understand that yes, this is an intangible, no, it's not run by a government, and yes, it has value. And that is a grassroots thing. Um, I'm working on a new Bitcoin business, which I'll tell you about in a few weeks or a month once it's more solid. But one of the uh, one of the core metrics that we're tracking to illustrate the adoption of Bitcoin in the market is not how many Bitcoin transactions there are. It's not what the price of Bitcoin is on the exchange. It's how many nodes are on the peer-to-peer -peer network advertising their address, how many people have actually downloaded and are running the software at this moment in time. And if you look at that curve, it's not an exponential curve. It's not these order of magnitude growth. And, it, and this is not a bad thing because it shouldn't be yet, but it shows strong linear growth. Every month, X thousand people hear about Bitcoin, download it, run it, try it out. And that adds to the pool. And then those people tell their friends. And, and I'm not saying it won't go exponential at some point, but so far we've seen linear growth. And that's a good thing. Um, it's this market is still very very small uh, a lot of people get really excited about how this is going to take over the world and all that and it's true but it hasn't yet and because the market is so small if all of a sudden you had ex thousands of people trying to buy a million bucks worth of bitcoin the market would just implode that you can't even do that and it's it's very difficult today to even buy a few million dollars worth of bitcoin the so the metric that I'm using to monitor the growth and the expansion of this throughout society is not prices, is not transaction volume, but the network node count, which is, is not a lot of people seem to be charting. Or There's a couple of people that are, that are logging this data, and it's available to anyone. If you're on the network, you can see all of the addresses of all the participants, but um, this, this isn't really publicized a lot, and I think it's a very important metric. Why is it important? Um, the, as I explained before, the, the value of a currency is its subjective value. And the more people that recognize Bitcoin as a thing and say, okay, this is software that I run and I use it and it talks to other, it's peer-to-peer -peer software, the more people that understand, if not on a deep technical level, just on a cursory level, what Bitcoin is and how it works, uh, then if, if nothing more than how the software works, you download it and run it and it synchronizes and you can send and receive payments those people are added to the pool of people who, maybe not immediately, but may recognize Bitcoin as valuable. And that 
increases its utility. So you're actually the network effect. So in this case, you're equating nodes to individual users. Yes. Okay. So when we talk about nodes, then there's a differentiation. There are full nodes, which actually have the entire blockchain. Mm -hmm. And then there are light nodes, which reference another service. Mm -hmm. Do you differentiate between those? Well, you have to differentiate between those because light nodes, for example, if you just have a front-end client for an online wallet service, those aren't represented in the network. But there's no way for us without, without going directly to those services and asking. And some of them publish, for example, the um, uh, blockchain.info wallet. They show how many people are using their wallet service. But, you know, for example, I have no idea how many users are you know, the Mt. Gox has these days, or I have, n and I have no idea how many users Coinbase has, or how many what their transaction volumes are, and it's very, it's very important for the long-term growth and the long-term value of Bitcoin to understand how many individual. It doesn't have to be exact, but a rough order of magnitude estimate how many individual people, a, recognize Bitcoin as valuable today. And how is that number changing over time? How many new Bitcoin users do we have per month? And like I said, it doesn't have to be anything even remotely exact. Just we have to have some sort of feel for these numbers. Right, right. So, you know, one of the other things we've been talking about a lot is this idea that uh, even though you have Bitcoin as this decentralized and cryptocurrencies as these decentralized networks, it seems like they are actually approaching more centralized infrastructures as mining becomes harder to, to achieve and more institutional. Certainly. Um, and I think that we're going to see in the short term a lot of this sort of centralization. But the, th the thing that, between, that differs fundamentally between a decentralized model that tends toward centralization and a model that is centralized by its design is that if, for example, let's talk about the the Federal Reserve wire network in this country. If you want to participate, th that is, has a bunch of different participants. You can send wires between them. But if you want to participate with that, you have to go to the central authority and say, I would like, you know, you apply yeah, to, to connect. Yes. Whereas with a, a decentralized server, even if it tends towards centraliz centralization, even if we only have, you know, 10 major players doing all the mining in Bitcoin, the fact is anyone can go out and go to someone who's manufacturing ASICs and buy a whole truckload of them, get an internet connection, get a rack, fill it up, and begin participating in this network. It's not, it's not a cabal. Okay. It seems like one because it's all early adopters right now. It's all people with entrenched interests. But that's going to change. We really haven't seen institutional money come to Bitcoin either on the investment side yet or on the um, or on the the hardware and tech side yet. Although there's lot, there are some rumors swirling over the last couple of days that institutional money is pouring into mining in a couple of different capacities. Absolutely, it will be. There's there's going to be a lot of there's going to be a lot of interest in all of the different ways you can make money using Bitcoin, leveraging existing capital. Same sort of logic, it seems like, can be applied to, uh, can be applied, you know, that, that it's not necessarily bad to have a few ASIC manufacturers because they can be sold because they're, they're selling their product and so it, it's still, you, you get distribution, it's just about the manufacturing side. A perfect, a perfect analogy here is, is SMTP, email on the internet. Okay. Uh, we have massive centralization with email on the internet. Gmail, Yahoo, Hotmail, you know, these, the, the Facebook now, there are, are a dozen providers that handle over 90% of all of the email on the internet. It makes it very easy for the NSA to go to them. And right, I was going to say, you know. I mean However, anyone can set up their own email server and interoperate with these people. Right. Um, that 
in theory could change in the future if these people decided to implement rules. For example, Google used to run Jabber servers that anyone could connect to. Uh, could run your own Jabber server and, and, and have IM conversations with people on Google Talk, and then they shut it off. A lot of people are upset about that, but uh, it's the exception, not the norm, to mm. federate with things like that. With email, you have to. You have everyone that that gets email expects to be able to send and receive email to anyone with an email address. Right, no wall. Even gardens. if it's not, yeah, exactly. Even if it's not at Gmail, and the um, I mean, maybe users are getting trained otherwise with the proliferation of direct messages on Facebook and Twitter and things like that. But I still think that people that have email addresses would, if you if you had a weird email domain and someone couldn't send an email to you or couldn't receive email from you, I think users would have an issue with that. Right. No, I totally agree. So, you know, uh, on, on the other side of the issue, you know, there's the minor centralization concern on the mm -hmm. ASIC side, but then we start talking about, okay, so well, what if you could go back to CPUs as mm -hmm. the primary thing for mining and you were able to create something that essentially didn't scale, mining mm -hmm. technology that didn't scale. So well, it still scales. It just scales with CPUs. You right, just exactly. buy more CPUs. Exactly. But it's, you, it's the same... It's the same cost curve. It's just you spend the money on something different. Hmm. I mean, you can you can buy. W certainly, it doesn't scale. Maybe the orders of magnitude that it does. Well, that's, you can that's still go out and buy. Uh, I, I mean, well, I'll let, let, for example, for example, yesterday at the conference, uh, we spoke with several ASIC manufacturers, mm -hmm. and they're uh, in the transition point now. The twenty-eight nanometer chips are just mm -hmm. about to come out, and then they're moving to fourteen. I, I'm sorry, it's twenty. It's it's a number not. It's not fourteen. Fourteen is coming out Q two of next year. Mm -hmm. But the point is, is that each one of these is an exponential step up in terms of efficiency. Mm -hmm. And so, for everyone who's purchased the equipment before, they're essentially invalidated. They they no longer the equipment doesn't generate enough return to even justify mm -hmm. operating it under most of these circumstances. So we have been having this you know, conver ongoing conversation about what the point of mining is and what I want to get to with you is one of the common things that we get is that if you were to revert to CPU mining, given the size of the Bitcoin network at this point, you would have uh, botnets, large botnets that would, would dominate. But, but it seems like this competition element makes it so that you would have, you know, the incentives are there to have multiple botnets essentially competing with each other, and it would be very hard to achieve dominance with any one particular network. So fast forward to the end game of ASIC mining. Assume that we have the physical limit of ASIC efficiency. Um, the thing you have to remember about the timeline we're on with Bitcoin is that Bitcoin is still very new. You can buy most of the publicly available Bitcoins right now for under $10 million. It's a very, very small market. And despite all the, the media attention, it's still not a very big market. It's growing. It's growing very quickly. And in five years, it will be gigantic. And it's already gigantic compared to where it was uh, even a few years ago. But we're still in the early adopter phase, despite all this. Right, I totally agree with you. And so with before the early adopter phase is over, we will be at the end game of basic mining. And because the difficulty is variable, it doesn't really matter if we're at the end game of ASIC mining or at the end game of CPU mining. What it becomes then is a function of how many dollars can you spend on chips. Because the, the ASICs and the CPU, it'll just compensate for however many you're running in the total of the right. network. And so what it boils down to is that the people that will control mining are the people who can dump the most money into chips, whether those chips are general purpose CPUs or whether they're ASICs or GPUs or whatever whatever algorithm is the best available technology in the market for running that that proof of work. You know, so talking about this end game, do you think that's a problem? So whether it's a problem or not doesn't matter because Bitcoin's decentralization requires a proof of work. And 
there's no proof of work that we can design that is resistant to someone who's willing to spend fifty million dollars. Okay. <laughs> like you can you can just because money is effectively work in this context. Yeah, exactly. Because you just buy more chips and buy more power. Right. And there there's nothing that can stop that centralization. More resources equals more proof of work. It doesn't matter if it's an ASIC that does five hundred billion more operations per second than a general purpose CPU. It's just a matter of how many dollars can you dump into your mining rig. Right. Because eventually ASICs will, I mean, we went from CPU miners to GPU miners. I, I ran one of the very first GPU miners. I was generating a few hundred Bitcoin a day at the time. Um, uh, I bought a, <laughs> this is actually a really funny story. When I started mining, I, I bought a $500 ATI video card. I put like about 10 of them in my Amazon cart. And the way I figured, because I did the little mining calculation, and I, I, I was about to put them on my American Express card, and I have like you know 30 days to pay for that. So I was like, well, if I get these and I put them on the computers, then I mine the Bitcoin. I like they'll pay for themselves in like two weeks. Right. And then, well, I, so I put 10. And then I was like, you know what? Well, what if this whole Bitcoin thing is, is <laughs> right. you know, what if this? Then I then I just blew five thousand dollars on video cards. Like, what am I, what am I doing? And so I, I took nine of them out, and I just bought one. And I got it, and it generated, you know. A few hundred Bitcoin a day, um, which today seems ridiculous. Uh, but at the time, what, so what were they worth at the point that you were doing this? Um, well, I mean, it, it, it paid for a video card, I think, the, in, in maybe like, you know, two or three weeks or so. So a $500 video card, two or three weeks, and a yeah. couple hundred coins a day. Yeah. So. And, and it was uh, when the, uh, the MomChill miner, the very first GPU miner that was publicly released, uh, and I got it working, and it was cool, and uh, you know. But then I, I just sold the bitcoins immediately as soon as they were generated because I didn't know if they, I did, wasn't interested in speculating in the currency. Right. So I think what's going to happen, you know, we we go from CPU mining to GPU mining, from GPU to ASICs, eight different different process sizes with ASICs. Eventually, we're going to bump up against limits, and at that point, the difficulty will be the same uh, for dollar, you know, dollar for dollar. For GPUs, or uh, rather, rather ASICs running this proof of work, or for general purpose computers running some different proof of work. Right. Um, certainly, it's it's like a band aid, you know. But the 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 answer is, in, in as far as I see it, switching to a different proof of work using a, a different cryptocurrency that uses a different proof of work. It's a huge dent in the adoption curve. You know, say, okay, don't use Bitcoin, use Strongcoin or something else like that. Like, you, you're not going to get even double-digit percentages of people that stop using one and start using the other. And the benefit is not a long-term benefit. It's a short-term benefit because eventually, whichever one becomes dominant, and I think it will become dominant because we don't need more than one. I mean, one is enough. Hmm. And I think that'll be Bitcoin. People will just dump all of their money into whatever chip makes them the most money. And it doesn't matter what algorithm that's running. See, you know, I used to believe that too. I used to think that, you know, that the, the there can only be one thing because again, you've got the network effect and that's such a powerful advantage in this particular type of field, you know, because like a language, you know, money mm -hmm. isn't that useful if nobody else uses mm -hmm. it. Um, but, you know, I, it seems like right now we're in almost a reality bubble where people look at the new situation that we have with cryptocurrencies and they say, okay, well, I use one because that's what you do. But it seems like there are some disruptive things coming in the future to the Bitcoin network and to the Bitcoin protocol potentially. Excuse me, that um, that uh, you know have the potential to, to pop that. 
and there are altcoins waiting at every, you know, hungrily waiting to, to capitalize. I'm, I'm not saying they're going to die. I'm just saying that the, the, there will only be one that has, you know, 50 million users. Okay. Okay. Um, I, I just, I don't see, I don't see altcoins as providing enough utility versus the one that already has the network effect going for it. I mean, there will be, there will be lots of altcoins out there that have lots of use, but my theory is that Bitcoin, or maybe it might be an altcoin, but there's only going to be one that's going to have 50 or 100 or you know 500 million users right. five, ten years from now. So uh, I know I said we talk about privacy. We'll get to that in the next segment. Um, so uh, have you read the Bitcoin two specification that's been I, floating around? I have. Very curious for your thoughts on that. Uh, can you can you kind of summarize uh, some of the things that it proposes? So, so I really uh, we're talking about um, we're talking about the, the the second Bitcoin white paper. Not yes, yes. Yeah. The so I like I like the ideas uh, and I like the 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 concept of of not having to make substantial changes to the Bitcoin network protocol or the 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 blockchain because for exactly the same reason I mentioned before, the network effect, if you had to make substantial changes and you have some sort of, okay, you have to pick A or B, or if, you know, if there's a fork, then you're not going to get buy-in. Right. Because the reason that Bitcoin is, has been so successful so far, and I think the core devs uh, understand this on a fundamental level, is because it's a set of rules we've all agreed on de facto. If we start changing those rules, there's there's going to be some percentage that say, well, I didn't sign up for this. Well, but that's the thing, of course, is that this this uh, the Bitcoin two paper mm -hmm. that came out wasn't released in a vacuum. It was released as a direct response. It seemed to me to the changes that have been proposed for point nine. Uh, have you taken a look at that? No, I haven't looked at those yet. So my understanding is that point nine includes uh, includes new additions, basically that add a central uh, issuing authority so that invoices can be issued. Um, and then they can be verified again by a third party, and so that sets off all sorts of warning well, bells. The thing with something like that is that as long as it isn't in the direct payment chain, like it's if it's if there there have been a lot of a lot of initiatives to figure out a way of authenticating a request for money, right? Because all of the ways that we have for conveying keys from person A to person B are subject to the same key management problems we've been having with crypto and users for the last 20 years. So it, a, a method for someone to verify that this key that is requesting money from you is actually the key that you want to pay is not a bad thing. Whether or not it should be in the protocol is another question, or if it should be something that runs alongside it. But as long as it's not in the actual coin transfer path, I don't really see anyone having a huge problem with it. Okay. A, a central, uh, maybe not a central issuing authority, but a central certification authority, right. which it sounds like sounds like what you're describing. Uh, you know, a, key, a public key that ships with a client that says, you know, these this is a legitimate request. Right. It certainly, it gives a little bit of control where people might have an issue. Well, it's that slippery slope thing. I mean, that's the problem. Here. Certainly, but it doesn't it doesn't necessarily. As long as there there's a wall there in between. Um, the actual payment system and the uh, you know an authentication system for for certifying transactions because as long as you can always send a transaction to a key that you've verified yourself right. as opposed to verified by some central central group then then you should be fine I don't see anyone really having a major problem with that fair enough fair enough so I mean so but that that is uh, my understanding is that it's not necessarily that these are just ideas that you know these people. I believe the group is out of Panama that's released this specification. Uh, that you know, like they just came up with ideas uh, in a vacuum. That rather this was this was a response to things that are, that are coming. So the if if 
So with that in mind, it seems like the situation isn't that we keep going as we're going or we change and we do this new thing. It seems more like one way or the other we have to change. I, I really don't think that's necessarily true. Um, one of the things that uh, some, of my, some of my associates have nicknamed uh, Sneak's Law is uh, users cannot and will not securely manage key material. <laughs> okay. Most users can't, and the ones that can won't. And so what this means is that this, I mean, this is why we don't have, uh, a, a, this is why we still use passwords on the web. This is why uh, we still have uh, most email being unencrypted. This is why, I mean, users just can't securely manage key material. They can't be expected to, and then the ones that can just won't because it's a huge pain in the ass. And so the, the nice thing about Bitcoin is that it sort of forces people's hand in that if you're going to use Bitcoin, in a in a non-centrally controlled fashion, like you're gonna run your own Bitcoin software, then you have to manage your key pair because your key pair are your Bitcoins. Uh, if you use something like an online wallet, then you're kind of just outsourcing that whole thing to someone else. But a lot of people, the thing that they like about Bitcoin is it's decentralized nature, right now anyway. Maybe not five years from now, but most people, I think, like Bitcoin right now because it's decentralized. And so that forces people to mind their keys because if they don't, then they can't participate or they just get their Bitcoin stolen immediately. Right. And so the what that can trigger is that we now have the basis for a web of trust because a Bitcoin key can be used as, as it was added to the client. Uh, I think in the last year or maybe year and a half that you can sign an arbitrary string with a Bitcoin key. So these are just key pairs. You can use them to encrypt. You can use them to. I, you can use them to sign. You know. You can. You can use them as. And then you can verify keys. it once so you sign. So you can use these. You can use these keys for any sort of crypto operation, not just for Bitcoin. Uh, and I think that is the method by which you can sort of bootstrap this sort of thing. It doesn't need to be centralized and it can be built alongside Bitcoin without actually changing the client. I see. Something that reads your wallet and you know, can issue a signed, uh, signed message saying this other Bitcoin key is ours or something like that. Right. So you could, you could recreate something like PGP's web of trust, which to be fair has been a huge usability failure. But with the correct... Um, sort of user interface and social protocol on top of it. So people are already used to Bitcoin's keys sort of being a huge pain to deal with. So if you're already doing that, then you might as well reap the benefits from that as well. Right. Well, that makes sense. Well, I really appreciate you clearing up some of those things that, <laughs> you know, this is, this is a, you know, I try to come at this from a, from as much of a explaining it as possible, and this is still hard. You know, I mean, I'm curious with Snake's Law. What? Uh, so, so, so it's just that it's a huge pain in the ass, basically. Well, so most people don't know how. Okay. And the ones that know how don't because it's inconvenient. So do you? I try. <laughs> but I mean, you, you and I both use OTR, for example, for right. semestering. How many of the OTR contacts that you speak to on a regular basis have you not via? SMS, not via some all you know, also possibly man in the middle channel. Uh, have you verified their OTR fingerprints? Right, it's uh, a handful. I, I click the verify later button more than I do anything else. Yeah, and and I know, I mean, and I, and I know how to manage keys. The fact is, it's secure communications, which is one of the reason, one of the primary reasons we want to use cryptography, are really really hard. Um, a buddy of mine pointed the, pointed out 
pointed this out to me the other day. I was trying to write about how there's so much snake oil being released in the wake of all this NSA spying. And everyone wants to make some easy app that you can just download, point and click, and then it'll encrypt everything securely, and then the NSA is foiled. Well, unfortunately, secure communications are logically a hard problem. Even in the most simple block diagram mode, even if you have the most perfect user interface, you have to do key management somehow. And if you just magically wave your hands and say, oh, well, everything's secure and encrypted, and you don't address key management, you've not uh, you've not solved the problem. And so users need to understand that key management is, is fundamental to secure communications or effective use of cryptography. Do you think that there is a solution for this problem? There is. Uh, I think that it will be um, partially hardware and partially social. I think that eventually what's going to have to happen for us to use the tools that we believe to be government snooping resistant uh, people are going to have to learn to manage their key, or, or they just won't have privacy. Right. Um, that's the other option. Um, or we can either one of them solves the problem in you know, <laughs> a manner of speaking. The 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 technology now is getting to the point where it's going to be easier to manage key material. Um, there, Bitcoin, like I said, Bitcoin is forcing the issue because so there's been so much. Um, work in, in, in hardware modules and key storage and offline key generation and smart cards and all this kind of stuff because people realize that if you store your keys on your computer and your computer gets hacked, your keys are gone. Right. And so there's a lot of people now interested in building things that will allow them to keep their keys private, even in the case of their computer getting compromised, which happens all the time. Uh, and once you have that in place, those same keys can be used for any sort of crypto operations. Right. Uh, and that, I think, is going to be the seed that eventually forces people to adopt the web of trust. Because like online payment systems, there's only two ways they can go. One way is that you have a phone that is basically you know, under the control of your national government that accesses some centralized system for making payments. And you don't think about your keys because it's, it's authentic. Like you go into the, you show your government ID and they give you new ones or something like that. It's all centrally controlled. But that's not going to fly because more than ever, national governments don't trust each other. Right. Um, this whole prism thing that's come out with the NSA spying on everyone, like they've basically put a bullet in the head of the US internet industry because no one's going to trust US companies with private right. data ever again. And we're, we live in a global economy. So the payment system that's going to win is going to be one where everyone can stand there in the standoff with guns pointed at everyone else, not trusting anyone because that's the market we live in. Whether you like anarchy or not, whether you're an anarcho-capitalist or not, that's the market that Earth has between nations. I kind of like that. That's one of the things that makes me sleep well at night is that regardless of whatever laws man tries to implement uh, on this planet, we still have an anarcho-capitalist society in between nations. So, so, so let's talk about that for just a brief second here and then I think we're going to end this segment. Um, so when we talk about you know, anarcho-capitalistic uh, relationships on a nation-by-nation -nation basis. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people take that as being chaos, but that's not really the world that we live in. It's more like relationships where everybody acts in their own best interest to, a, to as great a degree as is feasible. Well, is that right? Yeah, I mean, the reason that we have markets that aren't uh, voluntary is because of coercion. And you can't coerce another nation-state that also has nuclear weapons aimed at you. Like the the way that we we implement all these systems of control within a nation is with the threat of force or the right. delivery of force. 
if the threat doesn't work. And when you go to a nation state level, that doesn't work anymore. Because, like, for example, you know, that's why Snowden went to China, is because the U.S. can't bully China around, because they right. have all the weapons that we do. Right. And so the, what, we're, what we're going to see eventually is that for payment systems... And it may just it may just be national walled gardens. We may just go back to, uh, you know, where it's where it's m much more difficult to trade with people in other countries than in your own. But I I think that too many people now expect the internet to make global commerce easy. Right. And no amount of uh, no amount of legislation I think is going to put that cat back in the bag. So the systems that succeed will be the ones that that make that easier, not make that harder. And the and no one's going to use their their enemies centralized walled garden right. for payments. Um, the way we do it right now is that we have settlement systems in between these 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 countries, but um, but they're bulky. They're bulky and they're slow and they're time consuming and they're heavily regulated. I think eventually um, it's going to start. It has started with the black market, but eventually it's going to force the above ground markets to get with the program because you can't compete with something that that. Uh, uh, working like that, you can't compete with something that can make a payment in ten minutes, of any size to anyone on Earth with an internet connection. Like there's, it's just not going to fly. But with cryptocurrency, you can. You can. So Jeffrey, you know, one of the first things that you and I started talking about when you got here this morning was this idea that privacy is not only important, but that people really are misattributing what is actually happening right now in the world as far as privacy is concerned. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think <clears throat> a lot of people came to Bitcoin because it allows them something that's censorship resistant. You can pay anyone you want, anywhere you want. The government has no say in it. Uh, but Bitcoin itself, as we know, is not anonymous. The flows can be easily monitored through the Bitcoin blockchain. Uh, but let's say that you've somehow manage to satisfy yourself that you have bitcoins associated with a key that is sufficiently disassociated from yourself. Uh, you use a mixing service or you you know bought them for cash to a brand new key or some 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 way that you came across bitcoin and they're sufficiently disassociated from yourself. Now a lot of people say well then now that you have these anonymous bitcoins you can use Tor and you can send them to whoever you want or you can uh, sign a transaction and use Tor and push it through you know, some web interface that lets you publish transactions, and then you can use Bitcoin totally anonymously. And the problem, I think, with that is that um, there's so much in the Bitcoin ecosystem that people, that, that people hang their hopes upon Tor right now. And we, we, because not a lot of people understand how it works, uh, they assume that it's this black box. You use it, and then you're anonymous on the internet. And the problem with that, I think, is now that we've learned that the NSA monitors all internet traffic, uh, d both overseas and domestically. You know, the, the, they've tapped all the submarine cables, and they've tapped directly into exchanges for years now. Uh, it make, becomes very easy to, it doesn't matter what encryption Tor uses, just from traffic analysis, watching the flows of traffic through the network, uh, it becomes very easy to, A, have a complete picture of the Tor network itself, and B, watch traffic as it enters, bounces around, and pops out. And a lot of people have said historically, well, you know, all you have to do to subvert Tor is run a zillion Tor nodes and watch the traffic yourself. 
you know, and that's well within the reach of the U.S. military. But they don't even need to do that now. They can just watch the traffic between people's existing Tor nodes. Uh, and, it, and statistically, it becomes very easy to correlate these flows because Tor provides relatively low latency. So if you put a message into Tor and it goes between these nodes, so we, we view this in our head as just a, a, a graph of Tor nodes, but the reality is that all those node-to-node -node connections run over cables that do not mirror that, do not mirror that Tor graph. Uh, for example, you know, let's say it goes between three nodes, it may bounce back and forth across the same cable three times right. as those nodes talk to each other because you have no idea where they are. Right. And if the NSA monitors all of that information, it becomes very easy for them to associate that, uh, assuming that your connection goes on for more than you know, one or two packets, which right. it has to. Um, so from my perspective, if you're trying to protect yourself, you protect your privacy on the internet from the government in America, then Tor is insufficient, which means that all of the other privacy guarantees that you're expecting Tor to provide to higher level pr protocols, for example, Bitcoin, are also insufficient. So if you're doing something, for example, financing revolution with Bitcoin, let's say Bitcoin now has enough value to do that, and you use Tor to send these payments or to, to receive, you know, you receive the payment and use Tor to send it to someone else, you're going to run into a problem because the Tor becomes transparent if you can monitor enough of the network. Okay, so, so okay, l let's back up and simplify this a small mm -hmm. amount. So Tor is the onion routing mm -hmm. network, basically. And, uh, it's used for anonymity on the internet. Used for anonymity on the internet, with the idea being that essentially every node can only see the ones that it directly connects to, mm -hmm. and since it routes from node to node to node to node, you can't tell which node is originating because mm -hmm. you can only see one step in either direction. Yep. And then they're encrypted in various layers. Right. So that way as the layers peel off, then it comes out the other end. Okay, so, so but the problem that you're laying out here is in a culture, in, in, a, in a system that, like we have right now, mm -hmm. of pervasive surveillance, you can essentially wa uh, put a ring around it mm -hmm. and watch everything that goes into it and everything that comes out of it and because of the low latency nature of the system mm -hmm. it's easy to correlate those so long as you have that that top down you know 10,000 foot yeah you, you have to be able to monitor the connection the the traffic between every single node so is that also true again you know going back to bitcoin for a second or the majority of the nodes right, right exactly the majority of the nodes obviously the more that you can yeah. see the better your picture mm -hmm. is but it works even at like a 50% i mean i have to imagine at a, at a low level it would still work too yeah, so the the, the uh, one of the benefits of Tor is that it's used worldwide, and so a lot of nodes are outside of the United States. But there there aren't a ton of Tor nodes in general, and but more importantly, there aren't a ton of people using Tor. Right, and that's really the biggest problem is so because it's self-selecting to a certain extent. Not only is it self-selecting, but also it's it you're not going to have a ton of traffic to hide it, yeah. hide in. Uh, one of the ways that this could be mitigated is with changes to the Tor software and protocol that send. Uh, that send defined amounts of traffic at regular intervals. I see. Padding and and just send it whether you're actually sending something or not. Right. And this would make it some more noise. Yeah, exactly. But this takes up a lot more bandwidth right. and makes the cost of running a Tor node higher and increases latency for everyone. Right. Um, so it's, you, it's so a very you reduce functionality yeah. at the in order to increase anonymity yeah. and the security. But, but all that means is that fewer people are going to use it. Right, exactly. <laughs> and so it compounds the problem. Yeah, exactly. So so okay, so you know, again, going back to Bitcoin for a second here, 
everything that you just told me seems like it applies even more so to Bitcoin mixing services because Bitcoin mixing services you don't even need to stand on the ring around instead you have the entire you have the entire graph right there in front of you that's true so uh, are mixing services worthwhile at this point well, the thing with mixing services is that you can um, with with Tor you're connecting from source A to endpoint B and it goes through Tor, but it's it's a single point-to-point -point thing. Whereas with a mixing service, you can combine many inputs into a single key mm. and then fan those out to different keys. Mm -hmm. And as long as you have sufficient inputs and sufficient outputs, certainly the mixing service knows what's going on. Right. But someone who just has the blockchain might not. So this is different. If you only have five inputs and five outputs, right. then obviously that's, that's going to be easy to track. But if I, I feel that Bitcoin mixing services, if they have sufficient adoption and also sufficient trust, because they're going to have to be trusted, because the mixing service needs to know who put coins in to get coins back out. Right. Um, can work correctly, but they have to have a lot of users, and they have to be written in such a way as to not compromise the, the identities. Right. And they need to actually mix. So the difference here is that in the Tor network, when you send data through, it is the same data that enters as that leaves functionally. Well, the size, yes. The, the size, yeah, okay. Whereas with a mixing service, you're, it's like you put five in, and those five go to somebody else, the and you thing, get a different five The other five thing back. is that this is traffic analysis, right? So right. with a Tor, with when you send data through Tor, that data comes out the other end in less than a second. Right, okay. When you send data into when you send coins into a mixing service, that that might you know you it, depending on the the contract that you have with the mixing service, you might not get those back for maybe a week. Hmm. It's much easier to hide uh, hide networks uh, from uh, from an enemy that is using traffic analysis if you can increase latency and increase chaff padding right. in that in that message. Um, Whereas with something like Tor, which is designed to be as low latency as possible for usability, uh, it becomes much, much harder. So, so, you know, again, if people are seeking anonymity or seeking some sort of, you know, meaningful privacy through systems like this, are there other systems you would recommend that they use or is there a way to use so Tor that is safe? That's the problem is that I don't know of any other system on the scale that, that offers any of these guarantees. The One of the biggest issues that we have right now is that uh, there's no way that I know of to communicate securely on the internet without giving up your social graph. Uh, even assuming Tor is broken, um, assuming you use strong cryptography and you do key management perfectly and all of your associates do key management perfectly, you're still sending data from point A to point B. Right. You can still analyze that traffic. And until we have large networks with many, many users that are sending regular fixed size blocks of data at, at regular predictable intervals so as to mask the actual frequency of messages that are real, or the size of those messages that are real, or the uh, the time you know the time stamping of those, then we're not going to have uh, anonymous communication on the internet. We can have private communication right now using strong cryptography, assuming key management is done right. That's a big if, but we're not going to have anonymous communications. So does that matter? Absolutely, it matters. Traffic analysis alone, which is being referred to in the press today as metadata, uh, is everything. Let's say you're trying to you're trying to start a revolution and you have a cell with five people in it uh, and you know, your, your cover gets blown, three or four of them get 
thrown in prison, uh, they're going to know exactly where you're going to go. Like they don't need to know your tr the, what the contents of that traffic is. They just need to know who your associate network is, right. and then they can target them directly. Um, this the the I, the concept of traffic analysis is an amazing amazing uh, thing. It's y there there's cryptanalysis and there's traffic analysis, and with no understanding whatsoever, with completely opaque messages, and. Usually they're not completely opaque, but assuming for a moment the messages are completely opaque, just knowing when they're sent, how frequently they're sent, and from where and to where, you can get a lot of information. Uh, and there's no way to hide that on the internet. Uh, that's how the internet works. And so the best way that you can do is you can obfuscate it. You can send fixed size messages at regular intervals, and then and then mix and then then, then embed your. Right. Irregular communications into those, I see. but that requires being plugged in all the time. Right. And you're still sending fixed size messages right. between people. You're so you're going to need a very large network. So you know, playing out this logic, what does the world look like in five years? What does the world look like in ten years? Oh, a lot more totalitarian, I think. That doesn't sound tremendously good. Uh, I, I mean, like, is there you know, what's the is there is there a good scenario that can come of this? Are there actions you think that could lead us there? So, so I'd love to say that oh well, if we just make the right software. We're going to we're going to win the war and and give everyone anonymity and privacy, uh, but it doesn't work like that. Unfortunately, this is going there's this is going to be a lot of little battles between uh, people that want total control of payment systems and people that want total control of uh, internet monitoring, and those that that recognize that that's toxic to a free society. So does that look like the SOPA PIPA of last year? I mean, is it something different than that? I'm trying to get an idea of what. What even these moves are going to look like moving forward? A lot of it will be software, but uh, a lot of it is just going to be individual cultural changes that we have to make in the ways that we communicate. I see. Um, it's been an open secret for years that, uh, I mean, this was this was in action spy movies years ago. You know, burner cell phones that you send a text on and right. throw in the garbage because you know the the British or U.S. intelligence is going to yeah. zero in on you. Like we know that that the ways that we have of communicating are monitored. We've known this for years. Now we have direct evidence of it, uh, and it extends to the internet as well. There's a slide deck that came out today, illustrating a program that's been going on since at least 2008, where the NSA. This is separate from the Prism one, where the NSA monitors the content of people's traffic uh, and puts it all in a big database. Um, and it makes it searchable by by low-level NSA employees. Everything you do on the internet, and using soft content, not metadata. Yeah, uh, and and because here's the thing: all the, collecting all 100 percent of the metadata, comparatively, is very easy, and then collecting specific bits of content that you find interesting for everyone is also very easy. You don't get all the content. You receive all the content, but then you filter it and chop it up and you know, save, save all the messages and all the information and the photos and things like that. You don't need to save you know, every time the Facebook logo goes over the wire. Right. Uh, and so they put all this information in a database and then make it available to their, their analysts. So we're in New York right now. Mm -hmm. You generally live in Germany, mm -hmm. and you're an American citizen, mm -hmm. and why do you do that? <laughs> Why aren't you here? One of the big reasons I left is because there aren't any good, large American cities. I like city life, and uh, and there. I you mean, say that in New York. Yeah, I, I love New York, but uh, I'll never live here again. Okay. It's, uh, I lived here for years before I moved, and it's, uh, it's just the the America suffers from this terrible sense of 
we have to use a lot of government or we won't have nice things. And a lot of people buy into that. Uh, New York is very much like that. San Francisco is very much like that. Uh, I, I want to live in a world-class city. I don't want to pay out the nose to do it. And I'd like some semblance of freedom in my day-to-day -day life. And you don't get all those three things at once in any city in America. Hmm. It's kind of a bummer because all the people I care about are here and I'm authorized to work here. Yeah. <laughs> I think one of the big issues that a lot of people don't realize about this whole NSA thing is that, especially given that, that Tor, this, this completely negates the, the usefulness of Tor, right. uh, is that when you have all this data, even just the metadata, but also they have all the, the rest of the data as well. You have all this data and you put it into a database. And let's say you're only using it for anti-terrorism activities today. Which also we've learned it doesn't really work that. It doesn't work 100% well for. Right. Uh, what you're setting the stage for is a push-button silent military coup in this country. Because mm. when you have a database like this, maybe it's not abused today or tomorrow or five years from today, but ten, five, ten years down the road, you have all this information about every single person in the country. Anyone that has access to that that's sufficiently evil and we don't know what the future is going to hold. We don't know who's going to have access to that database in the future. Anyone that has access to that can then blackmail anyone in the country. Right. You can blackmail every federal judge, every congressperson, every, every state governor. It's a lot of power. It's, it's unlimited power. And the person that wields that can control the entire country. And by extension, most of the free world, because America's sort of the last global superpower. So let me ask, I mean, given where we are today, can this be walked back? I mean, clearly, clearly, what's happening is extra constitutional. You know, I mean, we're both American citizens, and we have supposedly the right to a variety of things to say what we want. And you know, th there's supposed to be uh, protection from searches and seizures, which certainly this uh, this sort of metadata and content collection w seems to breach. I mean, do you think that that the system can even walk this back? Should it want to, or are we? Just so let's say, let's say that they dismantle the whole thing and tell us they've done so. What's to stop them from building another and lying about that and copying the data over? I mean, there's, I mean, the Director of National Intelligence has already lied directly to Congress, right? Um, there's, uh, I don't think there's much hope for this country. I think the long-term solutions for people to realize that the only way to sustain this sort of thing is for them to com continue eroding freedoms because the more liberty you have, the less effective this thing is, mm. and the more you can resist it. And so, uh, you know, we've seen currency transactions in this country go from, you know, go from ten thousand to three thousand lower, and now, you know, and suspicious activity trans, uh, su suspicious activity reports are filed for any dollar amount now. Like we're we're losing the ability bit by bit to conduct ourselves in ways that are not subject to surveillance. And I think eventually that's going to lead to a brain drain. Eventually, because as it stands right now, no foreign company that has high-value confidential data is going to trust it to any U.S. company. Every U.S. company is at a huge starting disadvantage on the Internet right now because it's public knowledge that they can be forced silently to spy for their national military. And so what this means is that people that want to not start with a disadvantage are going to start companies in other countries. And that's going to directly affect the tax base of the U.S. and the GDP and the quality of life here eventually. It's a long, it's a long road, but the, the end of America is now beginning. 
And with that, Jeffrey Paul, a.k.a. Sneak, <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to episode 285 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show was provided by Andreas, Stephanie, Jeffrey, and Adam. Music for today's show was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. Thanks for listening.